quick announcement here with the Christmas program next Sunday. Uh, I think, believe Renee mentioned we'll be doing the program at the 10 o'clock service. So at the 8.30, there will not be the program. It'll be just regular church. But if you are interested in getting involved in uh, operating a camera as we record the uh, Christmas program, see Marv over there, and he will point you in the right direction. But we can use a couple camera operators for the Christmas program service next Sunday. All right, Acts chapter 4. Let's do the smart thing, pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. I just thank you for the safety you gave out there on the roads and with the weather. And for those that couldn't make it today due to the roads or just health-wise, um, pray you just bless them and take them deeper in you in all ways and all things. And just the time that we have here right now, as always, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct, and we say thank you in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 4. A little bit of background here before we continue our study in Acts chapter 4. If you remember correctly, last week Peter and John were heading to the temple. They were heading to the temple for the 3 o'clock prayer service. And as they were heading to the temple, there was a man that had been lame for over 40 years sitting at one of the gates. So this man would sit there all day at the gates. And they would have prayer at 9 a.m. and at noon and at 3. And his whole life consisted of sitting there begging as people would go into the temple for prayer. Peter and John go up to him, and he says, he asks for money, he begs for money. Peter and John say, very eloquently, silver and gold we do not have, but in the name of Jesus, we command you, rise up and walk. And this man is miraculously healed right there. Forty years of being lame, all of a sudden miraculously healed. It's an amazing moment in the church. The Bible says that Peter gives this great message, about 3,000 people get saved. And instead of ending on a high note, it ends with verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. They were arrested by the Jewish leadership at the time. And this is where it takes us to where we're at today. Peter and John have been in jail, if you will, overnight. And they're accused of this crime of healing this man. And this is where it kind of goes from now. Now, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. Now, we know what happens. We know Peter and John make a stand for the Lord. We know that they don't back down at the name of Jesus. But at this moment, things could change. Peter and John are going to be threatened here this morning. They could have very simply said, you're right. We won't push the whole Jesus thing. We're sorry about that. Can we compromise and just say Jehovah? Would that be okay? They don't. They stand strong for the Lord. They could have been bullied into not having a witness for Christ. Instead, the word that we're going to see this week, and when we jump back into Acts chapter 4 in a couple weeks, is the word boldness. Now, boldness. Boldness means confidence. To speak openly. It means to speak plainly. Some of your translations will say courage. To be bold. Do not equate boldness with rudeness. I know many Christians that think they're being bold and they're just being rude. Ephesians says you're supposed to speak the truth in love. There's a balance there. We speak the truth, but we also say it in the love of Christ. I've met Christians that are great at speaking the truth, but they speak the truth in this rudeness. I've met Christians that are completely loving, But they also don't have truth. They accept anything just to be loving. There's a balance there of truth and love. There's a balance of being bold in your faith, speaking openly, speaking plainly, speaking with confidence without it letting become rude. What you see here today with Peter is a boldness in proclaiming who Christ is in a very difficult situation. So with that being said, let's pick it up where we left off last week. Verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now you've got to envision this. The Sanhedrin's here. That's at least 70 guys. You've got other temple guard 
You have other people here. It's quite possible there's probably 100 plus people. And you got Peter John right there in the middle of them. Verse 7, threatening. By what power, by what name have you done this? Remember the time frame we're at. They just crucified Christ about two months ago. These are the same people that put Jesus on the cross. Their names are given right here. Annas right there, it was the high priest. He was the high priest for years. He was asked to retire, if you will, or step down by Rome. And they made his son-in-law priest. Now, Caiaphas was really high priest in name only. He had no power. Everybody still respected Annas. So they had these two powerful people. We don't know for sure who Alexander is, but it's possible that John was another son of Annas right there. So the leadership here, these are the people that just killed Christ. They had no problem crucifying Jesus. Now Peter and John are right in the middle of this midst. This is a serious situation. So verse 7 really dictates a lot. Like I said in the introduction, we know what happens. But at this moment, Peter could have backed down. Now before we get to Peter's answer, let's just ask this real quick. Have you ever had a moment where God opened the door and he asked you to be bold for the faith, but instead of being bold for the faith, you kind of just back down? I hear Christians a lot of time make very wishy-washy statements about God. I think maybe, possibly, that God might just be able to help you maybe in this situation. Well, come on. No, boldness. I know Christ. I know you're struggling. And I know the peace that Jesus Christ can give you. Well, maybe, maybe if you prayed about it, maybe God would maybe just help you. No. Boldness. Confidence. You know Christ. You know Christ personally. So since you know Christ personally, you now want to introduce him to other people to say, I know what he's done for me. I know what he can do for you. That's the boldness here. And that's what you see Peter doing in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What an amazing answer. That is a great answer in a difficult time. Let's break this down real quick. Verse 9, he starts out by saying, what's my crime? Crime is the guy got healed? That's what you want to get upset about. You want to get upset at us that there's a guy that was lame for 40 years and now he can walk. And that's what you're accusing us of. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, if you want to know how this guy was healed, it had to be Jesus. That's openness. That's boldness. It had to be Christ. See, the interesting thing about Jesus is as soon as you mention his name, you're creating problems. As soon as I say I believe in Jesus and I believe that he is my salvation... What I'm saying is that I don't believe Muslims are saved. I don't believe Hindus are saved. I don't believe Buddhists are saved. I don't believe atheists are saved. I don't believe agnostics are saved. Because I believe that it's through Jesus you're saved. That's why Jesus is such a divisive name. I can get up in front of many different groups of people, many different groups of spiritual backgrounds, and talk about God and be accepted by many of them. But as soon as I say, verse 10, the name Jesus, it's a completely different ballgame. Jesus said himself in Luke 12, he said, do not think I came to bring peace to this world. He goes, but I came to bring a sword. He says, I've come to turn father 
against son, mother against daughter, family against family. He said, I came to bring division. Now think about this. For some of you that you can remember when you got saved, you came home and you now know Christ. Maybe you came out of a very religious background, religious family, and you thought that everybody would jump up and down. And instead, it created division in your family. Jesus creates division. Ambiguous God doesn't create division. When you claim Christ, you are making a very definitive statement on what you believe and what you mean. Because in Jesus, jump ahead to verse 12. This is one of the greatest verses on salvation in the Bible. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a definitive statement that it has to be Christ and Christ alone. We throw out this term Christian all the time. And I I usually refer to some poll results that I recently read. And I think the last one I just read said 73% of Americans claim to be Christians. 73%. Now it's interesting when you talk to somebody who claims to be a Christian. Because I've run into people who claim to be a Christian that don't believe Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And I always wonder, how can that be? That word Christian means Christ, follower of Christ. So when I claim to be a Christian, that means I'm claiming to follow Christ and I'm claiming to follow what he believes and teaches. Now, sometimes people get smart and they say something, well, I like the teachings of Jesus, but everything else in the Bible, I don't get into. Jesus said the whole book is written about me. Genesis to Revelation. So when you claim to be a Christian, you are claiming that you believe and follow what God teaches from Genesis to Revelation. And you believe as a Christian that you follow Christ. And as you follow Christ, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a pretty big statement. I remember years ago I was watching one of these um, political talking head shows. And they had the moderator and they had four other people as guests. Three of them were not saved. One of them was the token Christian. Now, generally on these shows, the token Christian is really not something I get too excited about. Christian in name only, and it's kind of like, okay, this guy was good. I wish I could remember his name. This guy was good. So they started getting on the subject of Jesus and who Jesus is. And this guy came out and said, I believe Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And everybody kind of did the own on the moan and the groan. And he said, no, listen. He goes, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. I sat there and said, amen. The moderator said to him, he goes, I don't think Jesus would like you saying that. And I'm thinking, Jesus said that. Jesus said it. So Jesus would like me saying that. When I claim to be a Christian, I'm making a pretty big statement. When I say Jesus, I am claiming, verse 12, no one else can be saved except through Christ. When I say Jesus, I am creating division. I am. So by Peter getting up here and saying Jesus, verse 10, that's a big deal. A big deal. We're setting the scene for the rest of the book of Acts. The church, even though it's in its baby stage, is not going to back down. Not in any way whatsoever. And we know how this builds up. Chapter 4, they threaten him. Chapter 5, they tell him, basically, don't talk about Jesus or we're going to kill you. Chapter 7, they kill Stephen. Sanhedrin's not messing around either. They want to squelch this idea of Jesus. Remember, just about two months ago, this same leadership had no problem putting Christ to death. They don't have a problem doing this to Peter and John as well. Peter and John were bold. They didn't back down. They proclaimed the name of Christ. And then verse 11, they backed it up with Scripture. 
backed it up with Scripture. What have we seen in the book of Acts? Anytime they teach, they proclaim Jesus, and they back it up with Scripture. In a couple weeks, when we get to their prayer here at the end of Acts 4, guess what they pray? They pray Scripture. You know, when Harold came up to me this morning and said something about maybe sharing here before church, I looked at what he had, and he had Isaiah 55, 11. I said, that's great, because guess what? That's what we're talking about in the lesson today, too. God's Word doesn't return void. The beautifulness of that. See, sometimes when you get into discussions, debates, hate to say it, arguments with people, we have a tendency just to keep repeating our own voice and our own words. God's Word doesn't return void. There's many times I've heard good messages, and you'd ask me a day later what the pastors say. I may not be able to remember verbatim what he said, but I can remember, you know what, he was in 1 Corinthians 9. And he shared this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that really hit me. That's God's Word. God's Word cuts to the heart. It gets to the point. Peter, through the Spirit, used God's Word, made his point. You guys were going to reject Jesus. This is prophesied back in Psalm 118. Use God's Word. Anytime you get in a discussion with somebody, be it a defense of the faith, use God's Word. Anytime you get into a discussion with somebody that's hurting, that's struggling, give them God's Word as encouragement. Our words sound encouraging, but God is the God of comfort. Let the Word of God comfort people. I've reached a point now when I text somebody or write them a card, I put a verse in there. I don't know if they'll take the time to look it up or not. I hope they do. Because that verse brings comfort, it brings wisdom, it brings peace. You see Peter here in verse 11, making sure God's word is presented. Now, how can Peter give this great answer? Because it goes back to verse 8, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Anytime someone comes up to me and they have a big situation getting ready to happen, I usually ask them this, are you prayed up? Have you taken time to get prayed up for this? Peter was prayed up, he was ready He had the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. Go back to our study on the Holy Spirit just a few weeks ago. In John 14, 15, and 16, the Bible makes it clear the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, bring to us remembrance all things, will guide our voice into all things. You know, the Bible says in the book of Mark that when you stand before kings and rulers, it says don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't plan ahead. Let the Spirit at that moment give you the words to say. What a wonderful idea. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to be in God's Word, to study, to pray, etc. But what it's saying is, when push comes to shove, the Holy Spirit will step in there and give you the words and the wisdom of what to say. Proverbs 16.1 has a wonderful balance on this. Proverbs 16.1, write it down and study this one out. It says, the preparation of the heart belongs to man, meaning I have a responsibility to prepare, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The preparation of the heart belongs to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I have a responsibility to prepare. I have a responsibility to read over Acts 4, to take some notes over Acts 4, to study out Acts 4. But when I get up to teach, I hope my mouth stays silent and it's the Holy Spirit that does the teaching. Same thing with Peter. Peter has a responsibility to be in prayer. Peter has a responsibility to go study the scrolls of the Old Testament. But when it comes time to speak, it's the Holy Spirit that guides and directs him. So he has this amazing answer, this great answer. I don't think the Sanhedrin was ready for this. I don't think they knew what to do. My personal opinion, I think they probably thought, you know what, we took care of Jesus pretty easy. They saw what we did to Christ. They know what we'll do to them. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. 
See, how, how, do you, how do you debate boldness? Boldness, confidence, open, plain speaking, no fear. I know who my Savior is and I'm not afraid to say it. This interesting phrase here. They perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Your translations all say differently. Uneducated, untrained. Some say unlearned, ignorant. Some say ordinary, unschooled, no special training. These guys were just fishermen. But what they were fishermen that did what? At the end of verse 13, they were fishermen that hung out with Jesus. See, we're nothing here. We are uneducated, we're ignorant, we're ordinary, we're unschooled, we're untrained, but we know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, that makes all the difference in the world. I struggle with this a lot. I remember when I first took over out here as a pastor, people would come up and start asking about the church, and I would say, you know, Harvest Fellowship, and they say, well, what type of church is it? And I don't mean this in a bad way. Please don't take it that way. We live in a very denominational area. So people would come up and say, what type of church? And I would say, non-denominational. People would make the sign of the cross and yell at me and leave. You know, that non-denominational, it just sounds so strange. Well, then the conversation usually went to, well, where'd you go to college? Where'd you go to seminary? And I would say, well, I never did go to seminary. Boy, that really rubs some people the wrong way. We're uneducated, untrained. God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Let's look at the description that the Lord has given us here, starting in verse 26. He says that you're not wise. He says you're not mighty. He says you're not noble. He says you're foolish, you're shameful, you're weak, you're debased, and you're despised. That's how God looks at you. But then look at verse 29. That no flesh should glory in His presence. See, God has chosen the bottom of the barrel. So that way, when something amazing happens, no one can ever say, it was me. Because it can't be you. It can't be me. We're uneducated fishermen that hang out with Jesus and are filled with the Spirit. You realize how amazing that is? I've shared the stories before. I had a friend years ago that um, got saved. He was excited. Just one of those brand new, excited for the Lord, and nothing was ever going to stop him. So he used to say this all the time. He would say, pray to see where God needs me. And, okay, I thought, you know, kind of a new believer there, that idea of God needing you. But he kept, kept talking about it. So I pulled him aside one time and I said, you know what? Hey, I just want to let you know on how we speak Christian here. You know, the, the Christian way of saying it is, where does God want to use me? Because God doesn't need any of us. And he said, he goes, no, I, I think the Lord needs me. Because he goes, I think I believe, bring a specific skill set and background that the Lord really wants to use, and I think the Lord needs to use me in different areas. Okay, it's fine. He went into full-time ministry for about a year, year and a half. Came back after full-time ministry, and him and I were talking one time. He came up to me and goes, I just want to let you know, I've realized God does not need me in any way whatsoever. You start realizing the Lord doesn't need you. He doesn't. He chooses to use you. He chooses to use you. I was cleaning out our garage the other day, and the boys wanted to come help. Help is such a relative word when it comes to kids. Dad, can we come help? It's not help. I don't need you. I don't want you. It's not help. But I want to spend time with you. So come out and help. And I feel that some way with, with the Lord. Oh, Lord, can I help you? I'm saying God just shakes his head and says, yeah, you can help. 
It's going to take twice as long, but you can help. The Lord doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. These are uneducated, untrained, ignorant, ordinary fishermen that hung out with Jesus that are filled with the Spirit. It's an amazing thing. And verse 14, what is the Sanhedrin supposed to say? There's no doubt this guy got healed. I mean, this is not some fake conspiracy theory. This is not a plant. Hey, go pretend to be lame so we can heal you. Forty years. And as best as we can piece together, this guy hung out at the gate at the temple all day. And as we mentioned last week with this teaching, you know, if you had been lame for 40 years, your leg muscles, atrophy would have set in. There would have been nothing left. For this guy to be leaping and walking and bounding and jumping, you can't say anything about it. So what did they decide to do? Verse 15, when they commanded them to go aside of the council and conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Isn't that the world's response? Let's just threaten you. Let's just threaten you. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't talk about God. Don't bring your Bible to work. Don't wear the Christian shirts. Why? Just don't. Threatened. You know, there's a word that we don't use enough in the Christian language. The Bible makes it abundantly clear we're supposed to fear God. And now, and I do this too. When I teach on the word fear, I say, well, the word fear really means a healthy respect. And it does. But, but listen, if I have to choose between obeying God or the threats of man, there is not a choice. We obey God. And that's exactly what Peter came out and said. So, verse 19... Verse 18, excuse me, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John say, What do you want us to do? We saw what Jesus did. We know he raised from the dead. We know he healed. We know he walked on water. We know he did the miracles. We know what the, Jesus just did to this man right here. We can't but speak of the things that God did. That's boldness. The Lord has done something in your life, and you just can't keep quiet about it. So you speak openly, you speak plainly, you speak without fear and confidence over what God has done. So that way, when you run into a co-worker, a friend, or a family member, you can go to them with boldness and say, I have struggled with things myself, but I know the peace that God brought me. You can go to them and say, I know what the Lord has done in my life, and in my marriage, and my relationships. And I can speak to you openly and confidently on what God has done for me. I know it. I have many marriages out here where they come up and say, if it wasn't for the Lord, we wouldn't be here. I have many people come and say, if it wasn't for the Lord, I wouldn't be still here today. There's a confidence. There's a boldness in that. I know what God did for me. I know what he can do for you. Peter and John, listen, the name of Jesus is what healed this guy. And we can't back down from that. Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of all the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old in which this miracle of healing had been performed. This evidence silenced the critics. There was nothing anybody could say. God just did something extraordinary through ordinary people. Because those ordinary people hung out with Jesus and were filled with the Spirit. What a great combination. Now, there's one last point I want to make about this. Can you go with me to 1 Timothy 4? What silenced them? What silenced them was the evidence in front of them. 
1 Timothy 4, please. Maybe you have critics. Maybe you have people that consistently, constantly put you down. I hear this a lot. Somebody gets saved, and as they are walking in the Lord, trying to make a new life, the old life won't let them. They won't let them let go of the past. I, I, I know what you were like. I remember the words that used to come out of your mouth. I remember the things that you used to do. I remember how you used to act. And so what happens is people get frustrated with this, as you're going to 1 Timothy 4. They get frustrated, and they come up to me, and they say, what do I need to do? My, my family doesn't think I'm different. My, my wife thinks I'm just going to go back to my old habits and patterns. My kids don't see that I'm a new man. I always take them to 1 Timothy 4, verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely, entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. As you keep going deeper in the Lord, your progress will be evident to all. People won't be able to say something about you because they'll realize those words don't come out of your mouth anymore. They'll realize you're not punching the wall in anger anymore. They'll realize that that's not the way you act, that's not the way you think, that's not the way you are. Your progress is evident to all. You know how long it takes for your progress to be evident to all? Some of you have been saved for years and you're still waiting for your progress to be evident to all. And that's not an insult to you. I'm saying is some people come in with such a preconceived notion of who you are and what your past was. It's difficult for them to move past that. Christmas is a wonderful season as we celebrate the birth of Christ. Christmas is also awful because you have to go be around friends and family that you don't see that often. And there's a reason why you don't see them that often. And as you get together with some of these friends and family, they only remember the old you. They only remember the way you used to act. And so what happens is you want them to see the new you. Let your progress be evident at all. You're under no obligation to prove yourself to anybody. As you walk and grow deeper in your walking relationship with Christ, people will see the difference, they'll hear the difference, and they'll know the difference. It may not be as quick as what you want, but the progress will be evident to all. This lame man that was healed, they couldn't ignore it. How could they possibly ignore it? The guy was a cripple, now he's walking. As they see the changes in you, they'll see it. Maybe you weren't the dad you were supposed to be or the mom you were supposed to be. Let your progress now be new to your kids. Same thing with maybe you weren't the spouse you were supposed to be. Maybe you weren't the friend you were supposed to be. I don't know. Let your progress be evident to all. As you go deeper in your relationship with the Lord, they will see the changes in you, and God gets the glory. That's the beautiful thing about this. is the Lord gets the glory for the changes that He made in us. We're all works in progress. Every single one of us. Sometimes I wish we could speed up the process, but it doesn't work that way. Daily, just daily, grow in your relationship with Christ. As you daily grow in your relationship with Christ, the evidence will eventually come out. And people will see that, and they know who you are. That's how it happens. Peter, John, uneducated fishermen. But their progress was evident to all, because they knew Jesus, and they were filled with the Spirit. Mark, if you come forward here for the final song. We'll stop there. I would love to get a chance to go into the prayer that happens at the end of chapter 4, but don't want to uh, rush that.